listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for episode 229. Hey, Mark, we've survived another historical moment in the world. Is that I, what you call it, a historical moment? <sighs> I'm drinking beer because the water's under boil order. Yeah, we just went through a winter storm from hell, basically. But you know what, Paige? You know what's cool? It was really cool to see all the Texans chipping in and helping out each other. Our neighbors are helping each other. Well, that's just the nature of our culture here is, you know, we've been through hurricanes. And, and this was something that I don't think any of us really saw coming. But we band together. and Yep. Do you know even Will Smith came down to help? Will Smith. Yeah. Hmm. You know we found him? Who? You just look for the Fresh Prince. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Come on. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been saving that? <laughs> Since our last winter weather, which is 19 years ago. <laughs> that was ridiculous. Anyway, if you want to support the show, please leave us a review so we can read it on the air and give you a shout out. Yeah, for the first time, we haven't had a review. This is weird. It's probably because nobody could get on to... <laughs> nobody had whole, electricity. The whole country is shut down except South Florida. Speaking of shut down, we had to move our event. So our Here Now event has now been pushed out to Thursday, March 4th. And because we pushed out what was sold out has now freed up some tickets. So if you want to go check it out in person, which is here in Houston live, we have just a handful of tickets left. You get dinner, drinks, you get to watch Paige and I record a live episode. We're going to talk about all of our new stuff that's coming out, our new shows. We're going to a big celebration of our sponsor. And we're going to reveal something that has top, been top secret for almost eight months. And it's the first time anybody's ever done anything like this. So the link will be in the show notes. And if you can't make it here in person, we're going to live stream it so you can watch it uh, remotely as well. All right. So this is First Friday Q&A. Thank you, everybody, who submitted questions. Let's get right into it. And of course, as always, let's start off with Ludwig. His question is, is it hard to make a petrol station suitable for gas? Is it more complex than adding electric charging to a petrol station? Yeah. So what he's talking about, I'm sure, is we talked earlier about hydrogen and about how hydrogen in a lot of ways makes a perfect fuel, especially transportation fuel. The problem is there's, of course, no infrastructure for it. And yes, Ludwig, it's much more complex to build a petrol station suitable for hydrogen gas than it is for adding electrical recharge, and mainly because of the difference in temperature and pressure. Liquid hydrogen is extremely cold under extremely high pressure, and quite honestly, until the robotics get involved where the robot itself connects the hydrogen fuel pump to your gas tank and your robotic car accepts the connection, we're, we're not going to get there. It's not something you can do yourself. It's not something that's safe like pumping gas or diesel or plugging in an electrical vehicle. So yeah, it's a big jump up. Will we ever get there? I don't know. We'll see. All right. So the next question is from Craig, which is a petroleum engineering student. As a third year petroleum engineering student focusing on upstream, I find it really hard to find internships to better my chances and to get at least get an opportunity to work in the field somewhere. I'd like to add another more manual skill to complement my engineering. Example would be a welding certificate. Can you give me some advice? What skills might be in demand and a good fit for my situation to help me find an internship or a straight job somewhere upstream? I'm very good with my hands and like hands-on work a lot. Thanks so much, Craig. Great question, Craig. So any of the craft labors, pick the one you like. You mentioned welding, machining, pipe fitting, carpentry. 
All that stuff's in extremely short supply here in the U.S. And if you ask me which one I would pick, I think I would pick two. I think I would learn basic stick and shield gas welding, but then I think I'd also pick up pipe fitting. Those are two complementary skills. And I'm telling you, Craig, if you have the ability to stick metal together and a thread pipe, you will never be without a job in this industry. I've always wanted to learn how to weld. It seems it's, really um, neat. I can stick metal together. It, it would not be safe <laughs> for, <laughs> to, like for a bridge or something, but I could at least make it stick together. Carbon arc or with a, a torch as well. But nowadays, actually, things like uh, shield gas, like tungsten and What's the, the word I'm looking for? Where you end up, it's the only way you can actually weld things like stainless steel and aluminum. That's in very, TIG welding is what I'm looking for. That's in very high demand. So, Craig, yeah, go pick up a welding class, a pipe fitting class, and you'll be set for the rest of your life. And then the cool thing is, when you get out of school with a petroleum engineering degree, you'll always be the petroleum engineer that people want on their team because if something breaks, guess what? You're the one guy that has the skill set to fix it. Right. All right. So, the next one is from Jeff, which is maintenance for Motiva. What is your opinion of Motiva? Do you think it's a good company? Well, Jeff, do you think it's a good company? <laughs> do you think the future is bright? Thank you. <laughs> so, yes. And probably what he's asking about is Motiva very recently went through a, a split. So Motiva forever it was a 50-50 joint venture between Shell and Saudi Refining. So Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And then what happened is basically, I guess about two years ago, they decided to split the company up and basically Motiva took over some of the refineries and then Saudi Ramco took the other. So instead of it being a joint venture where they all they all own 50-50, now some of them own some of the refineries, some of them own some of the others. The culture there is like a lot of other refining cultures. It's slow moving. It's long-term forecastable, lower margins, not necessarily always looking for the cutting edge, but looking to drive efficiencies. But the cool thing about a refinery is that up until this past year, and let's throw that out the window because that's an outlier, refineries are long-term profitable, which means is, you know, if you get you a job in a refinery, it's one of the few places still, if you want it to, you could work 20, 30, or 40 years and then retire. And and then the funny thing is a lot of refineries are still some of the few places that have pensions. So, you know, barring these last two years, the refinery part of the downstream market itself is a very cool place to work. And Motiva is actually really cool. Of, of all the refining groups out there, I would probably say Motiva – is probably the most modern and up-to-date in a lot of their refiners. They're retrofitting a lot of their refiners. Now, this isn't saying they're Silicon Valley cutting edge because they're still in the refinery world, but good company culture. I've known them for a long time. I do think it's funny that you wrote in asking about your own company, but dude, I get it. So yes, I would stay. Okay, so next one is from Enrique Moreno, Core Cloud Instructor with Bootcamp Institute question is, congrats on the show I've been following for three years now. This is my question. I am a petroleum engineer who works now as an AWS cloud instructor. I'm looking to mix both my skills. Where can I start or who could I follow slash contact to have a career based on cloud computing applied to the energy sector, renewables or and or oil and gas? So, Eureka, pick any of the major operators. Everybody's moved their operations to the cloud through several different things that's happened recently in the news and it's kind of geopolitical, you know, there's basically three major cloud providers, AWS, Google, Microsoft, and the oil and gas industry and the renewable industry has figured out that they don't want to have all their ducks in one basket. So they're doing a, they tend to do a split. Typically it's 70, 30. So they have 70% of their cloud-based resources sticking to one provider and 30% the other. And they're doing that for a reason in case 
they need to change cloud providers, it's not business. It won't affect business critical operations because they already have their operations split between the two. Another place that you may not think of is think of a lot of the big think tanks. The big market think tanks in the industry, the Deloitte's of the world, have become big data analytics companies. They have no trouble. I mean, they have no choice. They have to learn that part of the industry. You have to get really good at differentiating. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. 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 So the the big industry think tanks would be another place. But cloud's here to stay. The vendors have proven the value to the oil and gas industry and also to the renewable side of the house. So it's really just almost like, what is your personality looking for? Are you looking for long-term, stable, gainful employment, which case I'd go look at the major operators. Are you looking to be constantly challenged and, and doing something different every two or three weeks? I'd look at one of the big think tanks there. So hopefully it helps you. All right. So the next one is from Nicola, investor. Great show. I'm relatively new listener and not sure if you've covered this in your prior podcast, but we'd like to know your view on Hill Corp's acquisition on BP's stake in Alaskan assets, specifically related to TAPS mean Trans-American Pipeline System. What is your view on the useful life of the TAPS as well as the future potential costs associated with decommissioning? I believe that local energy regulator was somewhat concerned with Hill Corp's ability to meet potential decommissioning costs. Many thanks. Yes. Yeah, so basically TAPS is Alaskan Pipeline. BP, I think, was about a 50% owner from the very beginning. One of the things you have to understand about the super majors, and there's only five of them, so BP's one of them, along with Chevron and Exxon and Total Shell, is they do big, multi-stage, expensive global projects extremely well. It's one of their competitive differentiators. What they don't do is smaller, faster projects extremely well, and so they tend to stay away from that. So as the fields in, in Alaska are starting to decline, as the demand for that crude has this year, once again, we got to throw this year out because it's been a freak year, but as the demand for that crude from Alaska has more or less stabilized, it's not nearly as profitable for BP as it was in the beginning. So BP, like all the super majors, tends to exit that part of the business and sell it. You're seeing it going on in the North Sea right now, right? All the super majors are exiting their North Sea business and selling it to companies that are a little bit more nimble. That's a better fit for their sweet spot. This is all that's going on here. Hill Corp is picking up the assets because they know they can make money at it. The decommissioning thing is is something that is is not a starter stop. There's always going to be part of that pipeline that's going to be taken down for planned maintenance or repair. There may be times where they need to add capacity. There may be times where they need to reverse the flow, depending on what's going on. That asset, that Trans-Alaskan pipeline is extremely valuable because it's the few way to reliably and environmentally safely move those hydrocarbons from the north slope of Alaska back to the U.S., specifically the Gulf Coast. So I think from a Hillcorp's point of view, is a great investment. I think it's a great mix of their portfolio. I think if you look at what's happening with their stock after they, they purchased that, you could see the difference in the shares. As far as people being worried about decommissioning, the pipeline itself in my lifetime, so the next 30 or 40 years, will never be completely decommissioned. It, it's still very useful, has a very long life. The engineering that went into it in the beginning to keep it from heating up the permafrost is something that you know is is extremely valuable and hard to replicate. So even though there may, may have been a little bit of pushback on from the local regulators about decommissioning, Hillcorp's financially able to do it, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. That pipeline is going to stay up and operate for a very, very long piece, long, long piece of, of time. All right. Next one is from Craig, which is a student. Hello, love the show and hope you might have a bit of a career advice for me. I'm in my third year by petroleum engineering, focusing on upstream and reservoir engineering. I'm 
at a very well-regarded school and have some international experience. With everything going on and the many changes in our industry, I'm wondering what else I could or sh should do to improve my chance to fulfilling career and success in this industry. I heard you saying that data analytics skills would be good, but I'm more into the practical geological side of petroleum engineering. Is there anything else you would recommend? What else could I do to prepare and position myself? By the way, I hear and see many guys turning away from the industry, but I figure going against the stream a bit holds opportunity. Thanks so much, Craig. So I agree with you, Craig. When everybody says turn it away, stay in it, and you'll be setting yourself up for future success without a doubt. So the petroleum engineering reservoir stuff, and you're looking for something to complement that other than big data analytics, and I get it. There are a couple of things you may want to look into. You may want to look into municipality construction. A lot of the same background and engineering tools that you use in petroleum engineering, reservoir engineering is also used with things like aquifers and building infrastructure and bridges, all that sort of stuff. That would be kind of a fun thing to do. But the other thing that you don't hear a lot of talk about is leadership. You know, if you're the type of person that at one point sees himself leading a team or a large team or a group, or maybe even a company somewhere down the road, start picking up some leadership classes. Leadership is a skill set like mathematics that you can teach. And at a young age in school, if you start picking up some leadership skills and some leadership training, that is going to set you so far ahead of everybody else. Because one of the things that's happening right now is a lack of leaders in our industry. We have a new young workforce that's coming in. We have an old workforce is retiring. But most industries right now have a whole bunch of people in their, you know, 40s to early 50s to fill up that leadership spot. And we don't in oil and gas. And so we're not going to have a choice, but having some of the new people that are coming in are going to have to take leadership roles. So I would go take some, some leadership training. There's a bunch of it out there. I think that would differentiate you and also make sure that you have a good, strong career in the industry itself. All right. Next question is from Ethan Reed, wireline engineer. I know you've explained carbon credits in the previous podcast, but I'd love a further explanation from you as I've heard it come up quite a bit in the news, especially with the Tesla and the majority of their income coming from capitalizing on carbon credits. I know you'll give a less biased perspective than other sources that are online YouTube. I love your podcast. My only complaint is that I wish you guys would upload more frequently. Keep up the great work. We're guilty, Ethan. We know we're guilty for not uploading every week. We're <laughs> well, it's more it. your fault than it is mine. You're overwhelmed with everything. So we're, yeah. Anyway, carbon credits. So let's make this a bit of a game, all right? So let's say Paige had a company and that company made tractors. Right, And so Paige's company, you could measure how much carbon they put out with all their operations. And so we're going we're gonna to say that a carbon credit is equal to one ton, ton of carbon, one metric ton of carbon. So for every one metric ton of carbon that Paige's company puts out, she has to buy or obtain a carbon credit. Now, let's say I have a company and I grow grass. I grow grass for all the people that want St. Augustine in their lawns all over North America, Right. Well, the byproduct of me having a grass growing company is that my grass actually absorbs carbon dioxide out the air. So I actually, for every ton of carbon my grass pulls out of the air, I get issued a carbon credit. I can now take that carbon credit and I could be nice and give it to Paige and she comes out net zero. But because I'm not going to be nice to Paige, I'm going to make her pay for it. Now, Paige has a chance to buy my carbon credit for 10 bucks, but somebody else has one they'll sell her for nine bucks. And somebody else has one they'll sell her for five bucks, but only if she buys two from them. That's the carbon credit market, right? So you have companies that are able to generate carbon credits by 
mitigating carbon dioxide. You have other companies that generate carbon dioxide and by law or by regulation have to have carbon credits and you build this marketplace for it. It's the same thing that's going on here in the U.S. with renewable fuel standards. And you talked about Tesla. I will tell you this much about Elon Musk, and I've never met the guy. I've never talked to him. I have a lot of appreciation because I think his ultimate end game has nothing to do with solar or Tesla or electric cars. I think his total end game is he's going to commercialize space. I think him and Jeff Bezos are in a race that nobody knows if he's going to commercialize space first. But we look at what Elon Musk has done, especially with Tesla, is that he is generating carbon credits because by our current regulation, they say his cars don't consume carbon-based fuels. And so he gets to actually generate carbon credits by making cars. Now, the truth is his cars do generate carbon in their manufacture and wherever their original electrical fuel is generated. But he gets carbon credits, which he can then turn around to sell. I think the model, the the business model is, is <laughs> phenomenally smart. And the carbon credit thing, I really, from a personal business point of view, I think is a distraction. It's a waste of time. I think it's going to cause us to build micro economies that benefit nobody, but actually the people that have the carbon credits or need the carbon credits, which is not good for the rest of us. But I also think it's here to stay. So regardless of what I think personally, it's here. So if you want to look at something a little bit risky, but something that may pay off big in the end, look at businesses whose operations pull carbon dioxide out the air. Look at forestry, right? Look at, like I said, my made up my grass growing thing. That's another one. And see if you could broker a deal where you can get a percentage of their carbon credits, but you actually run the marketplace so they don't have to do any of the work. And then you could turn around and sell those to the industries that will have to buy carbon credits in the future because it's coming. But that's basically what a carbon credit is what a carbon credit marketplace is. And like I said, I think a few people will make a lot of money off of it. And the people that make a lot of money off of it really don't care about the environment. They worry about making money. Yep. I agree with that. All right. Next question is from Susan Neeler. NS project manager for BP. I'm going to guess that NS is for North Slope. Just taking a a stab at that. That's as good good, good a guess as I would have guessed. (laughs) Big fan of you both. Especially love your insights page. Thank you. So here's my question. Do you think this remote worker situation caused by the COVID-19 lockdown is temporary? Or do you think we will be working from home? think the working from home is a permanent change to the oil and gas culture asking for a friend <laughs> i think it's i think it's here to stay i think susan wants to know if she could work from home for now <laughs> oh and, i mean who doesn't want to i mean you know you, you save money by staying home you don't have to get a daycare necessarily or you know you're so much more efficient you get more work right. done it's less stressful you get a better work-life balance you i mean that's to make our, that commute yeah that's our world so susan i think it's here to stay is to answer your question what was interesting is a lot of companies that would have taken them 20 years to get to the point to decide to let their people work from home. When the COVID-19 thing happened in 2020, they had no choice and they had to let their people work from home. And then I know this for a fact, a lot of senior leaders in our industry went, oh, it works. It really shocked them that it actually worked. Well, I and guess they thought we would be, you know, everybody be at home lollygagging around. Yeah, watching movies and playing video games. And so it's here to stay. I have some friends and professional so in the commercial real estate market, and one of the big things that's happening right now is Class A space. So think of big companies that want big parts of big buildings. It's being let loose in Houston like crazy. We're going to have an oversupply of Class A space and an undersupply of smaller space, right? And so now's the time to, to negotiate office space because the people that have the big buildings know this is coming, and they know that there's no wave of people to come in and pick up all this big office space. The other thing is it lowers the lost time incidents of the big oil and gas companies, because especially people that work in office, 
uh, when they have a lost time instance, typically it's traffic related, a traffic accident, slipping on the ice, yeah. or, you know, or that sort of stuff. So it's really interesting that the COVID-19 lockdown of 2020 accelerate the change in the culture in our industry. And it's it's here to stay. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's good for the environment. I think it's good for the people. I think it's good for everybody's mental health. And I think yeah. it's good for the companies. The companies that have realized this first have actually seen an increase in productivity from the same employees that were stuck in cubes in 2019. So it's here to stay. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have friends that do both. They go into the office and some of them stay home and it's pretty good deal. Well, the bad thing here, Paige, is if I have a meeting on the other side of town and I need to be there at nine o'clock, that could be two hours I'm sitting in the car to yeah. get to a meeting. That's a waste of two hours of productive time. And then I'm a little aggravated because I'm sitting there for two hours and there's a chance, especially because I've been called a slightly aggressive driver and there's a chance I might <laughs> get an accident, right? So it's just better all the way around. <laughs> aggressive <laughs> is an understatement. Shush. <laughs> all right. So the next question is from John Burgess, VP at Neptune Energy. Really enjoyed the show, industry leaders, onshore tech, and now your ESG show. Your content is useful, entertaining, and easy to listen to. And I love the domain expertise of your host portrait. No wonder you own this market. If companies want to get more involved with what you do from a commercial standpoint, what would that look like? And costs. Please keep up the great work. Hey, you want to come on to the industry leader show, John? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I think it's the first time anybody's actually been this upfront about this. So yeah. how do you work with us? You come to us and say, hey, we want to work with you. And then we figure out how we can help you with something. So I tell you the cool thing, and I may be wrong about this. So John, if I'm wrong about this, uh, please forgive me. I think Neptune Energy is an operator that just recently their employees chipped in a whole bunch of money and brought old laptops from home. And then Neptune's Energy's IT department cleaned it all up and they donate to a bunch of school kids so they could go to school during the clock. Oh, yeah, how cool is awesome. that? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was Neptune Energy that did that. And then I think the company matched dollar for dollar to help them buy new equipment That's for the awesome. schools. It is awesome. But to answer your question, you know, let's say Neptune Energy is looking for more investors to understand what they do, right? Well, you would come to us and we'd figure out, okay, podcasts are horrible at selling stuff, but they're very good at education. And, and we would be able to educate your existing investors and your future investors around what Neptune Energy does. We would stand up a show for you to meet those goals. And then it's it's easy. It's $6,000 a month to start for a podcast. It's an annual contract with an auto renew. We both have a 30-day out for any reason or no reason. I never want to hold somebody contractually. So if something happens, if you don't like us, if you lose budget, all you got to do is send me an email in 30 days, you're out of the contract and page. If we don't like them and they're paying a buck to work Bye. with, yep, we send you an email in 30 days, we're out of the contract. Yep. So that's basically how it would look. It starts with you have a need, you have a problem, and then we will we will honestly let you know if we can fix it or help you fix it. And if we can, we'll just we'll yeah, send we you. Can't, to, we'll tell you we can't. We'll send you to someone else. Yeah. The one thing is can. we have companies that come to us all the time that want us to help their sell their product or, or service, and and we're podcasts are not good for that. So we always tell those companies no. However, if you want us to educate the industry on what your product or service does, podcasts are excellent at that. So that's, that's basically how it works, John. Like Paige said, we would love to see if you might be a good fit for industry leaders. We charge you nothing for that. Which, actually, I'm glad that came up. So we don't let people, by the way, on our shows. Nope. No. We think that's unethical. It goes against our journalistic integrity. You know, There's other companies out there that if you pay them $10,000, $30,000, will let you do a full-page article. Or a, or a web webinar or, or webinar whatever and say whatever. you're the best company in the world whether you are or not we just think that's wrong so we do not do that now with all that said 
We have this show called The Pitch Podcast where yeah. we let you buy your way on the show to pitch your product or service. But we're open and honest about it. The audience knows that you're coming on there to pitch your product or service. And the cool thing, I've had a bunch of senior people from service companies, major, super major, say they love that show. That's Warren's show. Because they go, you know what, Mark? We love to see a salesperson pitch their product or service, but we don't have to give them our business card. So they don't right. bug us. Then if we like what we see, we reach out to them. So we do have one show that started off started as a joke where we do allow your way to buy your way on that show. And by the way, that show, you get a full podcast episode and full professional three-camera video shot as well. And we give you that for your own marketing use. But that, that's how you end up working with us. Come to us with a problem. We will let you know if we can help you, and then we'll just go from there. Yep. All right. So next question is from Katie McPherson, petroleum engineer for Marathon Oil. We all know the benefit of hydrocarbons to mankind, but I am worried that so many others have been brainwashed to hate our industry that public perception and ignorant politicians will cause our industry to disappear. I used to think that that was a crazy thought, but after living through 2020, it no longer sounds so far-fetched. What do you think? Will our industry be forced out of existence? And by the way, I totally agree with the page's hot comment from a few weeks ago. Thank you, Katie. So, Katie, first thing, I guess this is a petroleum engineer week. Because <laughs> we have a bunch of petroleum <laughs> engineers right in. There's nothing wrong with that. Katie, I, I feel it. I get it. I understand the, the concern and the fear. Do I think our industry will ever disappear? Absolutely not. Do I think that we may be, we may pushed maybe pushed into a corner where our products are so expensive that we can't compete on the market? Yes, that is actually one of my concerns. Will the world still have to use hydrocarbons? Yes, absolutely. Especially after this whole you know Arctic blast that we just got. Yeah. So the big problem here, and you touched this, is public perception. I'm gonna leave the ignorant politicians out of it because. Regardless of what political side you're here on the U.S., you have one side that doesn't like us at all, and you have one side that doesn't know what we do. And so from a political point of view, we've we've never been in a place where everybody loved us. We've always had issues with politics, and we always will. But the perception, the public perception thing is the thing I'm most worried about. When I talk to people that are earlier in their career that are bright or young, well-educated, and then they, in total sincerity, tell me how that the oil and gas industry is destroying the planet. That scares the bejeebies out of me. And so as an industry, we need to fix that. And the way we fix that is not by big corporate presentations. We don't fix that by industry organizations that have Hollywood budgets to make movies. We fix this by talking to our neighbors, by talking to our kids, by talking to our kids' teachers, and and talking the truth and the facts, not political opinion, you know, not politics, not, you know, what I think, but literally the facts. Hydrocarbons are the most organic fuel source there is to mankind. Think about what they are. It's literally legacy sunlight that's been nurtured by Mother Earth for millions of years. You can't get more organic than that. And people just don't understand that. And so nothing against renewables. You know, we're launching a renewable show. Renewables have their place. All energy has its place. All energy is a mix, and that mix will change as we go through time like it always has. But the public perception thing, Katie, is the thing I most worry about. And it's one of the reasons that we started this whole podcast network is to help get the truth out there. And, and we're doing it bit by bit. So, you know, any big companies out there that that see what I'm talking about and want to help in a non-political way, you know, we would love to to talk about you helping us with our ESG show. That ESG show was stood up specifically and targeted specifically to fight this negative public perception. So anyway, Katie, thanks for reaching out. Do I think that you need to be scared? No. Do I think you need to be concerned? Yes. All right. So the next one is from Anonymous. Hi, Mark and Paige. 
I'm a woman in my late 20s working at a refinery in California. I've been working in the oil and gas industry for three years, which is about how long I've been listening to your podcast. I wanted to first thank you for what I've learned listening to the podcast and for keeping me updated on current events related to our industry. You have a great podcast. Please keep up the good work. My question is for both of you. I'm interested to see both of your points of view on how to handle this issue. I work with mostly men in their 40s and 50s, and I'm tired of having to sit through meetings listening to their racist and blah. I can't even say that word. I can't say either. Just consider them. <laughs> They're racist and biased comments. Racist and biased, <laughs> misogynistic comments. I got it. I have been told that it's been best for me not to work in the field because I would distract workers. Even though I'm covered head to toes in with a Nomex hard hat and boots, not the way I dress should matter anyway. I have also heard countless racist jokes that I have rather not repeat. My question is, how should I deal with these behaviors? I'm tired of keeping my head down and just being quiet when I hear stuff like this. It's insulting. I have thought about going to HR, but I'm worried that it might just antagonize these people even more against women and minorities and won't change their minds. They'll just learn to be quiet about it. I have also thought about talking to our supervisor because they know better than to make these jokes when he's around. I think this might have a similar effect as contacting HR. It would be obviously who complained about them and this might make the work environment even more hostile for me. I would just like some guidance on how to deal with this without burning bridges and with people. I'm tired of working around these dinosaurs <laughs> and I'm considering moving to another industry that has more diverse management. The workforce at the refinery is very diverse, but unfortunately, my team isn't. Thanks in advance for your help and hope you are both staying safe from the snow in Texas. Yeah. So, you know, so the first thing is, it's a damn shame page. We still have to answer these questions. But anybody in the audience that's feeling like this, send them in. I'm not saying don't send them in. I'm saying that we should have grown past this. There's so, always going to be some ignorance within the industry. And I feel like that it's not just our industry necessarily. It's across many industries. Yeah, of course it is. You know. The advice I'd give this one woman is something that, this young woman, that's something that's probably unexpected. I get either talking to your supervisor or HR making it worse. You know, the way it's set up, the hierarchy, the way it's set up is to keep that from happening. But we all know the reality is, is there's these little groups of people that band together, especially in a refinery when it's the same employees year after year after year. And you have to navigate through that culture. And unless the HR person or the supervisor is really plugged into all these little groups, you're probably right in the fact that it's probably going to make it worse. Let me tell you what I would do. I would set an appointment with the refinery manager. I know refinery cultures very well. The refinery manager is a king on a kingdom. The refinery manager has everybody's best interests at heart. And I would sit down and very honestly and openly tell the refinery manager just what you told Paige and I. If anybody can fix that and actually fix the culture, it will be the refinery manager. And if it doesn't get fixed and it makes it worse, you know that you tried in the ultimate way that you could. The refinery manager then can decide which resources he or she wants to bring in to help with this. But I really think I'd skip HR and your supervisor. I think this is bigger and it's more baked into the local clicks in that refinery than you know a single person probably can fix but the only person that could really fix it is the refinery manager and like i said i think i would be very open and honest and have the conversation and actually i'll volunteer myself if you don't feel comfortable with this connect me with your refinery manager and i would happily have a conversation without mentioning your name but if that doesn't work as much as i freaking hate to say it you know maybe it's time for you to move on i have a different view completely i wouldn't even get involved myself as a third party but i'm all about documentation 
Who said what? You know, keep your journal. Go to your supervisor. Have that discussion. If they don't back you up, then you move on up to their boss. If they don't do anything about it, go to HR. But document, document, document. CYA. They let you go or make it really hard for you to work there. Lawyer up. Protect yourself. That's all I really got for you. Yeah. I don't know what the right answer is, but it's I don't think there is a right answer. I think it's a matter of her situation and that she's got to feel it out. She'd have all the guys from OGGN show up at her firing. <laughs> Dude, that would be hilarious. <laughs> a little protection going to work Oh, there. hell, I'll, if y'all are going, I'm going too. And Paige would probably be the worst of the gang. Probably. Probably. Anyways, all joking aside, if we can help, let us know. Yeah. Okay, so... Last question is from Jacqueline, least compliance specialist. I, I guess she works for the entire Alaska Division of Oil. <laughs> In episode nine published <laughs> January 21st, 2021, in a segment about the large U.S. banks no longer being able to deny funding to oil and gas. You also said that no one is drilling in the Arctic. In Alaska, that's a large portion of our oil and gas industry. We drill for oil and, and gas in the Arctic on the North Slope and offshore in the Beaufort Sea. Does this podcast just focus on oil and gas issues in the lower 48 states? I don't think so. You got me cold busted, Jacqueline. Uh, <laughs> you know what it is? So, And she's right, by the way. You feel like it's connected to the rest of the... I feel like it's part of the U.S. Well, I don't feel it is part of the U.S. When I'm thinking of Arctic drilling, I'm thinking of well, nationalized waters that nobody owns. Yeah. And that's what's in contention. That's, you know, you have us and Russia and China, everybody looking at that circle on the very top of the globe that nobody owns, that nobody has any land. The Arctic Circle? Yeah. Now, I will say this much. The state of Alaska, if you look at it on a map, the top, say, one-third of the state of Alaska is in the Arctic Circle. So she's 100% right. I was 100% wrong in saying that we aren't drilling the Arctic Circle. I really should have changed that. And what I really should have said is that companies want to do exploration in parts of the Arctic Circle that doesn't belong to anybody. That's how I really should say it. So, Jacqueline, thanks for making sure that I am speaking the truth and that when I make mistakes, I'm the first one to correct it. So I do really sincerely appreciate you I just like correcting her, it. I just like her because it came from a compliance specialist. Yeah. So high five, Jacqueline. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you want to talk about the shirt? Hey, people, if you want this really cool IBM shirt, and it is super cool, Check on the show notes, either swipe up or left, depending for Android or iOS. You'll see the link, register. If you don't win one, you can register every week. And the coolest thing is, Paige, I recently reinstalled the MailChimp app on my phone, which then alerts me every time somebody registers. And so I now see y'all registered, people. It's literally several times every day somebody's registered. Like your phone doesn't blow up enough. Yeah, I know. I know, but still. So, and then we're going to do something really cool. The shirts have a unique serial number. Just stay tuned. Make sure you keep track of your unique serial number. And then weekly rig count page, what that's looking like. The United States is at 397, zero change from last week, change from last year's down 394. <laughs> Canada is at 172, down four, down 72 from last year. Internationally, 677, we're up 12 from last week and down 401 from last year. So good numbers. Yeah. Not great, but good numbers. But I tell you what, I haven't looked today, but at one point we had hit $60 for WTI. I think we're right now, right below. I think we we're like $59. Wasn't that last week? You were like, hey, hey. Yeah. Well, so so out. my prediction is we would hit 60 or $65 by the second quarter of this year. So boom, I hit one of those predictions. But I just think it's cool. So the price of crude's creeping back up, you know, after coming out of this winter snowstorm from hell. And it wasn't just Texas, the whole country. You can see demand go up quicker than, than it would have before. So all in a good place. And speaking of all in a good place, 
go to the good places on LinkedIn. Just look for OGGN and just join stuff. Make sure it's us because I think there's another OGGN on LinkedIn. But just make sure it's Oil and Gas Global Network. The page is probably the first thing you want to join. And then the street team, if you have an interest in volunteering and, and being like our second cousins, part of the family, but just like one <laughs> generation removed. But just go join stuff on LinkedIn. We have a, a lot of stuff, a lot of new stuff coming out this year. It'll be the quickest way for you to learn it. Oh, and if you're trying to join the group, if you're a part of too many groups on LinkedIn, I cannot approve you after so many. If you're, isn't that strange? You, strange? you can't be a part of too many groups or you can't join more. And so it gives me an error. Ah. So you're seeing it because you're an administrator. I wonder if they even know. I don't know. I got one person I need to. If you're a real person and not a bot and you applied and you didn't get approved in a week, maybe go drop one of your groups off and come back apply again. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to have you. Yep. And then, you know, the deal first Friday Q&A, you submit your questions either on com or OGGN.com, either one. If we use your questions on the air, you get a big shout out. And remember, the goal is not to stump pay dry. Well, I mean, we do our research, so that kind of works out. And then finally, if you want to know about all the oil and gas events like our here and now on March 4th, go sign up for the, a monthly little point email. The link is also in the show notes. It's free. It's the easiest way for you to stay on top of all the oil and gas events going on everywhere. And sometimes you get free tickets and stuff, so it's cool. And then if you want myself or any of our experts to come speak at your event, either virtually or in person, let me know. We have some in-person stuff starting to stack up. It's actually pretty cool. I've been waiting literally a year to go back to <laughs> speaking in person. And that's about it. Paige, you ready to get out of here? Yeah. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here's Savannah with Events on Deck. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the Events on Deck for February 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, the TAMU SBE Sporting Clays Tournament at Tonkaway Ranch in College Station on the 19th, and the Thrive Energy Conference at Minute Maid Park from the 24th to the 26th. The only online event we have this month is the TAMU SPE Executive Series with our very own Mark LaCour of Oil & Gas This Week on the 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for February. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil and Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. Oh,